you open your Bibles and follow along with me here as we continue our scripture reading in Luke or in chapter 9, and I'll read starting at verse 43. The word of the Lord. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For, who, for, one, uh, for the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to them, to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go up to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned to them and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the, bear, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another one said also, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. If you open up your bulletin and turn to the catechism on the lower left, uh, we also have a very special uh, service immediately following. We're going to be receiving two more members into our uh, church, so uh, we'll make sure to welcome them, uh, and we'll have that immediately following. So we're looking forward, and we're just so thankful for what the Lord is doing here at Grace uh, Covenant Church. Uh, so our catechism's question today, we're on the fourth commandment, so I believe this is the fourth or the fifth week where we're going through the fourth commandment. Uh, we've gone through sort of the uh, presuppositions to the creation ordinance of the fourth commandment, started at creation, and we kind of went through how we see that continue into the New Testament, uh, only God has changed the day from the last day of the week to the first day of the week. So now we're kind of go into what does that mean for us as a believers, how are we uh, to honor God by uh, obeying the fourth commandment. So I'll say the question, and then we'll all together say the answer in unison. Question 65. How is the Sabbath to be sanctified? Answer. 
The Sabbath is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the, whole, the time in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. As with all of the commandments of God, uh, specifically here in the, the Ten Commandments, there's a positive and a negative aspect uh, to the commandment. Today we're going to focus on the positive aspects of the Fourth Commandment. What are the things we ought to do? Next week the Catechism addresses what are the things we ought not to do. Isaiah 58 and verse 13 and 14 says, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways and seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you from the heritage of, your, of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the positive aspects of the fourth commandment, uh, as it says here in the catechism, is that we are to, we are to rest that day. We're to have a holy resting of that day. Uh, and it says we're to holy rest from worldly employments and recreations. Now we're going to get to that next week, okay? Because there's some important definitions we have to address because this was written in, 19, in 1689. Okay, so there's very specific reasons why they used that wording. So we're going to get to that next week. But what we ought to do to honor God on his holy day. Every day is the Lord's, but there's something special about the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's hour. It's not the Lord's morning or the Lord's afternoon. It is the Lord's day. So the positive aspect is that we're to rest that day. And we're also to take up the whole day in private and public worship and acts of necessity and mercy. Okay, so those are important. We're going to address those next week a little bit more. But Jesus uh, addresses that in Matthew 12 and other parts where there's, there's things that you have to do. There's things of necessity to do on the Lord's Day. There's also acts of mercy to do on the Lord's Day uh, as well. Okay, But again, the Sabbath was made for us. God made the Sabbath as a blessing. And that's why Isaiah 58 says to delight in the Lord, make the Sabbath a delight. So as we go through the things that we ought to do on the Sabbath, if we feel like that's a grudge or that's just weighing us down, uh, then we got to check our hearts. Like it is made to be a a wonderful day for us to rest and to worship God. I'm going to read some excerpts from Thomas Watson on the positive aspects of the law or of this commandment. And he says that the Sabbath consists of two positive commands of two things. One, solemnly preparing for it. And number two, a sacred observance of it. So he says when we're preparing, he says if a prince were to come to our house, what preparation would you make for his entertainment? Or a, or a, a governor, a godly, say a godly governor's coming, or if we had a godly president coming to your house, what preparations would you make? You would sweep the house, wash the floor, adorn the room with the richest tapestry and hangings that there might be something suitable to the state and dignity of such a great person. On the blessed Sabbath, the Lord's Day, God intends to have sweet communion with you. 
He seems to say to you, as Christ said to Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for this day I must dine with you. Now what preparation should you make for entertaining the king of glory, he says. When Saturday evening approaches, sound a retreat, call your minds off from the world, and summon your thoughts together to think of that great work of the approaching day. Purge out all unclean affections, which may indispose you for the work of the Sabbath. Evening preparation will be like the tuning of an instrument. It will fit the heart better for the duties of the ensuing Sabbath. So we ought to make preparations both Sunday evening and Sunday morning since we worship here in the afternoon. So think to yourself, what are some things that I could prepare the night before so that I'm not so stressed out on the Lord's Day? Okay, what could you do? Like parents that have children, we like to set clothes uh, to aside. Like what are they going to wear? Little things that we do to prepare for the Sabbath so we're not scrambling uh, around all, uh, all of the Lord's Day. So prepare. And then number two, the sacred observance of it. He says, quote, rejoice at the approach of the day as a day wherein we have a prize for our souls and may enjoy much of God's presence. He says, get up early, early shall I seek thee, the psalmist says. He says, prepare your body and prepare your soul for the hearing of the word, he says. One more thing. He says to prepare your minds and your souls for the preaching of the word. So he says, when you sit down in your seat, lift up your eyes to heaven for a blessing upon the word to be dispensed. Just as God called the people of Israel to wash themselves clean before the Ten Commandments were going to be spoken to Moses. You remember he said to consecrate the people. We should consecrate our minds and hearts. When we sit down, we're hearing the very words of God being preached to you for your own good and for the for the um, encouragement of your soul, make that, uh, make that a blessing and make that a delight to your soul. Get all of the distractions, he says, and all the drowsiness away so that you can use what God has ordained on the Lord's Day to be a blessing to your soul. So those are positive aspects uh, to the Lord's Day, the fourth commandment. Next week, we'll go and look at the things that are prohibited in the fourth commandment. Amen. Hymn number 206, Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. Let's stand together. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assails me. He, my Savior, make me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, He is with me too. 
Jesus, what a strength in weakness let me hide myself in him tempted tried and sometimes failing he my strength my victory wins hallelujah what a Savior, hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, he is with me to the end. Jesus, what a help. In sorrow, while the billows o'er me roll, even when my heart is breaking, He, my comfort, helps my soul. Hallelujah! What? A Savior, hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, He is with me to the end. Jesus, what a guide and keeper while the tempest still is high storms about me night or takes me he my pilot bear me cry hallelujah what a Savior, hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving, He is with me to the end. Jesus, I do now receive him more than all in him I find. He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his and he is mine. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end.
then flip back to page 77. This perhaps is a new hymn to many of you. Here at Grace Covenant Church, we want to introduce some new hymns, and this is one of them. It's not that complicated. I think that we can do a good job on this. Let's sing together, God of Grace. God of grace, amazing wonder, so immeasurable and free. All the miracle of mercy, Jesus reaches down to me. God of grace, I stand in wonder, as my God restores my soul. His own blood has paid my ransom, awesome cause to make me whole. God of grace, who loved and knew me long before the world began, sent my Savior down from heaven, perfect God and perfect man. God of grace, I trust in Jesus, I'm accepted as his own. Every day his grace sustains me as I lean on him alone. God of grace, I stand astounded, cleansed, forgiven, and secure. All my fears now confounded, and my hope is ever sure. God of grace, now crowned in glory, where one day I'll see your face. And forever I'll adore you in your everlasting grace. May be seated. Amen. When you run out of hymnals, that's a good problem. So we do have more hymnals ordered on the way. So we're thankful again for uh, the Lord growing our, our little local church here. So let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we return to our Lord and Savior's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to continue to examine what our Lord has to say about His Old Testament law. Uh, in particular, we're going to look to see how Jesus explains the original intent of the law. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start looking at Verses 21 verse through verse 48. Now, we're not going to cover that whole thing today, uh, but when Jesus turns to look at what the Old Testament was supposed to mean, he gives some common principles throughout from verse 21 to 48. So before we dive into each of these six illustrations individually, we're actually going to kind of do a flyover of the whole passage and look at what Jesus is saying here. Uh, and then in the subsequent weeks, we're going to 
drill down to these one by one and seeing what Jesus is saying in each of these. So I'm going to read some just some highlights of each uh, illustration that he gives, starting at verse 21 through 48. So you're going to kind of see me jump around uh, a little bit. But he says in verse 21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Now flip over, go to verse 27. And you heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her. In his heart. Verse 31. It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Verse 38. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray now, Lord, as we look at your words, Father, the written word of God, but also, Lord, your spoken words. Lord, we pray that you would be with us, that you would lead us and guide us, God, that you would use this word for your glory, that it would not return void. Father, we pray that you would use it to soften hearts. We pray that you would use it, God, to even pierce us that needs piercing, that those of us that need conviction, Father, we pray that you would use this word to convict our hearts, Lord, not for our own condemnation, God, but for your grace, for us to repent where we need to repent, But Lord, those who are not in Christ, use this word, Father, to pierce their heart, to bring them to repentance through faith in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name. Well, in this portion of of the sermon, Jesus gives six illustrations that are oftentimes misinterpreted, misunderstood, misapplied, and oftentimes just grossly, uh, grossly interpreted. But I want to warn you, I want to warn you as we kind of enter this portion of the Lord's Sermon, I want to give you a warning and an encouragement. I want to warn you that this portion of Scripture was given by our Lord and Savior, written in the Word of God. It was meant to cut you to the heart. That's my warning. My encouragement is to be open to the Holy Spirit's work as He applies the Word of God to every area of your life. As a way of a short review, if you look back at verses 17 and 19, we sort of went through this in a number of weeks. Verses 17 through 19, Jesus affirms the validity and the perpetuity of God's Old Testament law. Then in verse 20, he rebukes the Pharisaical legalism and makes a statement that both connects what he just said and what he's about to say in the rest of chapter 5. So I want to look at verse 20 just a minute, 
He says, For I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What an astonishing statement. Jesus is saying to the people listening that the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to have a righteousness that exceeds the very group of people that were considered to be the most righteous. Remember, we look at the scribes and Pharisees and see hypocrites and we see bad, right? They're bad. But to the people listening, those were the most righteous people in the whole culture, in the whole, in the whole religious sect of Judaism. And so now you're telling us, Jesus, that we have to be more righteous than them? How does that work? Now, we know that the only way to be righteous enough to go to heaven is to have what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, right? Righteousness apart from the law. We know that the righteousness to inherit the kingdom of heaven is the righteousness imputed to us by the righteousness of Christ, his work, his active work in his life and his passive work on the cross. We know that. However, I believe that given this context, I believe Jesus is explaining what true righteousness looks like in a believer's life. So after verse 20, when he tells them that your righteousness has to be surpassing them, it has to be over and beyond the Pharisees and scribes, they might ask, how do we do that? And Jesus is probably like, well, let me tell you how. And then that's when he goes on and talks about this practical righteousness in the rest of the chapter. And, you know, I thought it was really good, Pastor Swan's sermon last week on faith without works is dead. I thought that was, this is just timed so well that now we have sort of the opposite. Faith without works is dead, right? Well, to the opposite, works without faith is also dead. Or works without a regenerate heart is also dead. Or another way to put it, external moralism without a heart change is dead. Here in chapter, in verse 21 through verse 48, Jesus lays down the original intent of the law, and it wasn't external moralism. He corrects their orthodoxy, if you will, which is right believing. So for what I just read through verse 48, he corrects their orthodoxy, and then we'll get to in chapter 6, basically the whole chapter, Jesus lays down correct orthopraxy, which is right believing, or right, excuse me, right behaving. So he corrects their doctrine of the law with the rest of this chapter. We call that orthodoxy, correct orthodoxy. And then in chapter 6, he corrects their orthopraxy, right behaving. So there's some general principles that Jesus lays down in these Illustrations. These illustrations are not to be taken as Jesus is just correcting these six things that they had wrong. He actually is doing this to prove a point. He makes these six illustrations to prove one point, and we're going to get to that. And there's also general principles that we can draw out from these six illustrations. But before I do that, I want to get into what Jesus is not doing in these passages 
and then, to get to G- and then get into what Jesus is doing. So first, let me address what Jesus is not doing with these passages. Jesus is not superseding or establishing a new law. We hear that often from antinomians that say Jesus here is dissenting from the law and he's creating a new law. And he's not doing that. Neither is Jesus going above and beyond the law. How many times have you heard that? See, Jesus is going above and beyond the law, right? Has anybody else heard that but me in the past? Well, there's a problem with that, folks. Who wrote the law? God. And if Jesus is going beyond the law, if the law was only meant to produce this externalism, if the law was only meant uh, to uh, approach it in an external works righteousness, then why does Jesus rebuke the Pharisees? Why does Jesus rebuke the Pharisees if the law was intended to just be external? Then Jesus really doesn't have a right to rebuke them because they're just doing what the law says, right? You follow me? So Jesus is not going above and beyond his own law. He's not going above and beyond it, nor is he correcting the law itself. And there's two, there's two more problems with this view. First of all, he'd be contradicting his own law, his own written word, and he's not doing that. And we just looked at verses 17 through 19 where he establishes his law. So he wouldn't be creating a new law if he just says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to establish it. It doesn't make logical sense. He's con- he would be contradicting himself. And second, he puts him in stark contrast with his own law that he wrote. So let's look at these illustrations and I'll prove my point here. Look at how each one opens up. Starting at verse 21, he says, you have heard that the ancients were told. And then in verse 27, you have heard that it was said. Verse 31, it was said. Verse 33, again, you have heard that the ancients were told. 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said. Well, if you look at the original Greek, there's some deviations on what he's saying, but in totality, he's saying the same thing and using the same Greek words. The word where it says it was told or it was said, this word in the Greek is not the common word that's used throughout the New Testament when someone says it was told or it was said. The common word that's used is either lego, which is, again, he said, she said, he's saying, she's saying, it was said. Lego is the most common word in the New Testament, and it's used over 2,000 times. The second most common word is laleo, and that's used 272 times. When Jesus, in these six illustrations, uses the word it was said, or it is said, or those six times, he's actually using a word that's only used eight times in the New Testament, six of which are here, two in the Old Testament. And this word in the Greek is reo. And I believe when we look at this word, it helps us to unlock what Jesus is correcting here, what Jesus is saying here. So follow my train of thinking here. So reo has the idea of not just speaking, but pouring forth audibly, 
pouring out, uttering out loud. There's a sense of constant flow when it comes to this word. So if you look at Jesus uses this word six times, and then also a couple times he makes mention of the ancients. Look at verse 21. He says, you had heard, which is that word, to flow, to utter, that the ancients were told. Excuse me, the ancients were told. The ancients heard. Uh, the ancients were uh, flowed, it flowed out. Who are these ancients? Well, most commentators agree that these ancients, uh, the original word just means ancients of old. Uh, most commentators agree that that word is being referred to as the ancient rabbis throughout the Jewish history. So put these two together. Jesus uses this unique word, the word written in the Greek, and then he uses these ancients, these rabbis. See, the rabbis, they would quote each other as their authority. Rabbi this so-and-so said, Rabbi so-and-so said, and they would quote the rabbis as the authority. The Talmud, almost on every page, has Rabbi so-and-so said. So the idea here with Jesus using this unique word to pour forth a constant flow, the ancients were told, the rabbis were told, it was said. The way that Jesus is using this, uh, this verbiage, the idea here is that this is not something that was once spoken. When Jesus says you had heard it was said, it, the audience, Jesus wasn't speaking about, hey, you heard one time. The way that the Greek construct is, is that, hey, this has been told over and over and over by these rabbis, these ancients, these ancients. It's been told over and over and over. So the idea here is that these were not something that was just once spoken, but there was a pouring out forth of this doctrine throughout the Jewish history. These oral teachings, you, they were told, it was said, right? It, he doesn't say it was written. Although he quotes the Old Testament, that's very important. He never says it was written. See, if you, in verses 17, 18, 19, he talks about the written word. Not one stroke, not one jot or tittle shall be abolished from the law, right? But now he's talking about what's been heard over the ages, throughout the ages. So these oral teachings throughout Jewish history and the applications of the law by the ancients of old, these were so commonplace and assumed that for Jesus to come and say, hey, you've heard this throughout the ages, but I say to you. For Jesus to make that statement was provocative. For Jesus to make that statement was absolutely shocking to the audience. They had never heard somebody say that without authority, but I say to you. Because throughout the Jewish history, friends, again, it was always Rabbi so-and-so said and Rabbi so-and-so said. But now Jesus saying, yeah, you've heard all that, but I say unto you. And he's talking about the oral traditions, not about the written word. Jesus has not taken issue with the written words of the law of God. He's not taken issue with the patriarchs or with the prophets who wrote the law of God. So this leads me to what Jesus is doing in these texts. We see what he's not doing. He's not going above and beyond the law. He's not dissenting from his own law. He's not establishing a new law, but he's correcting the rabbis and scribes throughout the ages 
who misinterpreted and misapplied the law. Jesus uses these six illustrations to convey one central truth. He's contrasting the historical oral tradition of the law, and now he's establishing the original intent of the law. See, friends, the Jews, they held to merely an external adherence to the law. They evaluated their standing with God based upon their external moralism. Haven't murdered anybody? Check. I haven't physically committed adultery? Check. They held to the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. Years ago in my uh, corporate career, I, I was in a policy management team. And so we managed policies for, for the corporate, for really for the whole corporation. And then there would be policy violations, there would be policy exceptions. Uh, anybody who's worked with a large company knows what I'm talking about. And oftentimes people would say, no, 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 but the policy says this, and they read it to the T, and they're adhering to the letter of the policy. But if you read the whole policy in its context, there's a spirit of the policy. So that's talked a lot about in the corporate world. What's the spirit of the policy, right? Instead of trying to hold to the letter, the external letter of the law, there's an actual spirit of that policy. And are you adhering to the spirit of the policy? Okay? And so that's what the Jews got wrong. And that's what Jesus is establishing here. That there's not the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law that Jesus was establishing or restoring because the Jews got it wrong. Jesus uses these illustrations to explain the intent of the law and that the intent, listen, the intent of the law was never meant to be external. It was meant to be internal. It was always meant to be internal. And see, friends, the Jews, they ignored completely the internal parts of the law and then they twisted the very external parts of the law. You get what I'm saying? Like, for instance, divorce, which we're going to, uh, tackle in the subsequent weeks, they twisted Moses's command to allow divorce by writing a certificate of divorce. They twisted that into meaning any reason for a husband that doesn't love his wife, doesn't like his wife, can write a certificate of divorce. See, check the box. I did what Moses said we could do. That wasn't the intent of that. That wasn't the spirit of the law. So they ignored the internal parts and they totally twisted the external. Establishing the original tent of the law as internal does not negate the external. The external is a natural outflow of the internal. So here's the ditch on the other side, right? The internal aspects of the law does not negate the external aspects. What do I mean by that? Well, some people in our uh, culture, in our Christianity cultures, they, they ignore the external and they just feel, you know, as long as, as, long as my heart's right. God knows my heart. You know, yes, I, I, you know, I, I, may have, I, may, I may be doing that, but God knows my heart, right? When you focus on the internal, it doesn't negate the external. You know, because of the whole rally still on my mind yesterday, we used to minister outside of abortion clinics, uh, and so many so-called Christians would come up and say, you know, God knows my heart. That should worry you. You're about to kill your baby. 
and you're saying, God knows my heart, this is okay, God knows my situation, God knows my heart, absolutely not. And you can take that with any sin, not just the sin of baby murder. Okay, take about with any sin, with, with coveting, with lust, you name it, those, those secret sins that we try to make excuses for, but God knows my heart. It's okay to do that because God knows my situation. No, it's not. So focusing on the internal, friends, does not negate the external aspects. When you get the internal right, then the external will come. So you have a logical contradiction by that way of thinking of, you know, my heart's good, the external doesn't matter. So here I want to go through four principles that we can draw from these illustrations. Uh, The first one is very simple, and it's Jesus further establishes the law by presupposing its validity. In each of these six illustrations, although he's speaking about the oral traditions, he's quoting the Old Testament, and he's refuting the misinterpretations and the misapplications, but by doing that, he is presupposing, again, the perpetuity of, and validity of the law, meaning that God's law, God's standard, is valid and it is perpetual, meaning he did not abolish his standard, his law. And it's interesting that the first two examples come straight from the Old Testament, I'm sorry, from the Ten Commandments, but then the next four commandments come from other parts of the Old Testament law that many Christians say, no, that, that we, don't, we don't pay attention to the stuff in Leviticus, well, Leviticus is where we get, you heard it said that thou shalt love thy neighbor. That's quoted from Leviticus. And all of the other examples are quoted from other parts of the first five books of God's word. So that's the first thing. Number two, the law of God is not only concerned with the negative aspects, but with the positive aspects. And I went over a little bit in the fourth commandment today. The law of God is not only concerned with the negatives, but also with the positive. See, the Jews and many legalists are really good at the don'ts. As long as I don't do that, don't do that, don't commit adultery, don't commit murder. You know, fast forward to days, as long as I don't, uh, you know, commit adultery, I don't kill people, I don't, you know, gamble, I don't get drunk, whatever, whatever it is, right? We can so focus on the don'ts that we forget that for every negative command, there's a positive command to it as well. Uh, John Calvin's Institutes really hits this home. That for every, po- every negative command, God, you can derive that there's a positive command. These illustrations go beyond the negatives and address the positive aspects of the law. For example, the first two illustrations, murder and adultery, that's the negative aspect. But the positive aspect for murder and for adultery is that our heart should be pure. That's the positive. Our heart should be loving. Our hearts should be, uh, uh, have purity in them. The Jews looked at a list of do's, I'm sorry, a list of don'ts. Uh, many today think the same thing. We can get trapped in that. Well, as long as I don't do these things, I'm okay. These illustrations show that God is as concerned with the positive aspects of the law as he is with the negative aspects of the law. And friends, these are only six illustrations. You can pull a lot of the Old Testament commands and you can use the same principles with those commands. For instance, the third commandment, do not take the Lord thy God, don't take his name in vain. That's the negative, where the positive aspect is that we should keep holy and reverent 
the use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. So there's a positive aspect to the law. So that's the second thing. God's not only concerned with the negative, but he's concerned with the positive. Number three, God is more concerned with your internal desires, motives, and thoughts than your external actions. And here's where I want to focus the bulk of the rest of my time. And this is, this is really the focus that God, uh, that Jesus is using with these six illustrations. He's trying to drive home this one point. And it's not a new thing. This was intended from Genesis uh, to Revelation. It's all one, one common theme and one common method. These six illustrations show that God is more concerned with your inner purity than with outer performance. This is saturated in the Old Testament, brothers and sisters. Jesus addressing the issues of the heart is validating what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament law has always been about a change of heart. Always, not merely externalism. There's a misunderstanding that the law was merely external, that it was all works-based, that it was all salvation through keeping the law of God. And friends, that is not the intention of the law of God. You know, sometimes scriptures like John 1.17 will be used. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. See there, Mark, it was just all laws, all works in the Old Testament. Now, and you've got the New Testament, we're all under grace. But friends, he isn't saying, he isn't saying that the Old Testament was all works through the law and the New Testament with grace. What does he say? John's not, John is not giving a contrast between the law and grace. He wasn't saying law through Moses, but now there's no law. We have grace. No, what does it say? It says the law was given through Moses. That's all it says. And then it says grace and truth were what? Realized through Jesus Christ. But friends, there was always grace throughout the Old Testament. Just Jesus Christ was the fruition and he was the fulfillment of the prophecies in the Old Testament of God's grace being executed and fulfilled through the work and the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So the Old Testament is clear that God is concerned about the inner man and not your external performance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. Psalm 7, 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Proverbs 16.2, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. And Jeremiah 11.20, but O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously? Who tries the feelings and the heart? Let me see your vengeance on them, for I, for to you have I committed my cause. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. You see there, 
God from in the Old Testament, all throughout, God looks at your motives. God looks at the thoughts of your mind. God weighs your heart. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It is indisputable, friends. Not only does God weigh your heart, not only since the beginning of time, God looked at your heart, the Old Testament clearly communicates that God desires your heart to be pure. It was never about external performance to God. Even in, from the beginning of, of his people, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, listen to what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your works. Doesn't say that, does it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words, the very next verse, verse 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your external performance. No, shall be on your heart. The Jews miss this. Jesus would rebuke the Jews saying they, and many, many times he'd quote Isaiah and he said they profess their love for me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Friends, is the law of God, God's commands, are they just on your lips? Are they merely external? Or is the law of God written on your heart? Deuteronomy 10, 16. So circumcise not your foreskin. Circumcise your heart. Cut it off. That's what circumcision means. Cut off the sin in your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Jesus was telling his people, cut off your sin. Get your heart right. Not focus on the external deeds to earn righteousness. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants. To do what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Friends, to fulfill the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, does not come through your moral external, your external moralism. It does not come from doing the Christian things, from going to church, from reading your Bible, uh, to, to praying. It doesn't come that way. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength takes God himself to circumcise your heart, to regenerate and to create a new heart so that you will have a heart that loves God's law, that seeks God's law. And as David said in Psalm 51, verse 10, he said, Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 37, 31, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. You see here, friends, the misunderstanding that the Old Testament was all about works, was all about the external uh, moralism and, and, and doing all the uh, checking the boxes on being a good God-fearing Jew. That absolutely was not why God created his law. We see here it's always been a matter of the heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
So from the Old Testament, we see that. And this was also a feature of the New Testament promises spoken by the prophets. The idea of a heart change, the idea of of purity in heart, of a circumcision of heart. In the New Testament prophecy in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, talking about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is echoed in Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant in 31 and verse 33, chapter 31, verse 33, where he declares the new covenant and part of that new covenant, which we're in, is I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So from the old covenant to the new covenant is one central message in that God changes hearts. God is more interested in your motives. God is more interested in your internal desires. God is more interested in your affections than he is in your performance. Brothers and sisters, please understand that this has always been and always will be a matter of your heart. Get the heart right and the fruit will be inevitable. Just as Pastor Swan said yesterday, a bad tree doesn't, yesterday, last week, a bad tree doesn't produce bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. Get the heart right and the fruit will be inevitable. So the Old Testament was never, never about legalism, never about externalism, but it was always, always, friends, about a matter of the heart. And number four, finally, the ultimate goal here is not to avoid sin, but it's to become more and more like your heavenly Father. Look at the last verse of the chapter. After Jesus goes through these six illustrations, after he corrects the Jewish view of external moralism and gets to the matter of the heart, after he establishes the intent of the law was to change your heart, look at verse 48. Therefore, now there's an immediate context we'll get to, but I believe there's also a greater context on all of these illustrations. You are to be Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in one sense, Jesus is establishing his standard for righteousness, his standard to inherit kingdom based upon your works, which we know we can't attain. But in another sense, I believe what he's saying here is that God wants you to become more like him. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That should be our standard. That should be what we desire to do. Not to be perfect so we can be holier than thou and be righteous and look down on on people. But our goal is to be like Christ. Is your goal to be like Christ? Now let me ask you this. Is your goal to be like Christ externally? To do the things on the outside that Christ would have done? Or is your goal to be like Christ in your very heart? Because the very heart of Christ, the heart of God, 
is what? Perfect, is holy, is good, is righteous. We need to evaluate, friends, we need to evaluate our motivation, our desires, why we do things. In verse 48, where he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember the threefold use of the law that I went over. The law is to preserve or sanctify his elect. It's there to point and to purify. His law is to purify us. This is how a believer is to be practically righteous by the law of God. And then also to point us to Christ. I believe that verse is doing two things. Like I said, it's to purify us that we can become like Christ, but also pointing those who are out of Christ to Christ and showing them that their heart's not right. See, friends, take these six principles and apply it to your life. And if you're an unbeliever, these six principles are meant to cut you to the heart, to point you to Christ, to show you that your heart's not right before God and that you need to flee to him for salvation. And for the believer, these six illustrations as we're going to go through in the upcoming weeks are also meant to cut you to the heart, to take a mirror and evaluate your motives, evaluate your mindset, evaluate your affections and why you do things. Why do you do the Christian performance? Why do you do the Christian duties that you're doing? And to evaluate yourself so that you can and we must repent as God works in your heart. As we go through these six illustrations, if you don't find yourself repenting, as I already have, (laughs) being in this word, then that should be a, a warning light to you that maybe something's wrong with your heart. Maybe you're not truly in Christ. Maybe you need to evaluate some things. So to conclude, I want to ask you, from the youngest here to the oldest, is your religious performance external? I want to ask you today, friends, why do you do the things that you do? Why do you speak the Christian language, the Christianese? Why do you go to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why, parents, why do you teach your kids the things of God? God knows your heart, God knows your intentions, God knows your very motivation. And if that doesn't cut you to the heart, friends, I don't know what will. Because that cuts me to my heart. Because I am guilty of many times doing things for the wrong reasons. And these passages are meant to conform us to Christ. Don't rebel against these passages, friends. Don't excuse the things that you're doing for the wrong reasons. Use it as an opportunity to confess your sin because the Bible says he who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. So why did you come to church today? Why did you get in your car and come to church today? Did you read your Bible this morning? Why did you read your Bible this morning? Why do you do all the religious stuff? As we get through the rest of this chapter... Jesus even lays it down even thicker and talks about practicing your righteousness before men. So if this is thick, it only gets worse from here. But friends, this is for our own good. This is why God gives us these passages. 
is because he loves us. These passages are meant, these passages are a grace to us. It's a grace because it leads sinners to salvation, but it's also a grace to us who are in Christ because it's there to conform us to his image, which I hope is your desire to do today. I'll, quote, I'll end with a quote from Greg Bonson, who wrote this, quote, If our religious duties are not done in gratefulness, faith, and love, then they might just as well not be done at all. For God abhors a mere outward and hypocritical performance while desiring inner sanctification. End quote. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your mercy today, God. We thank you for the grace that this passage gives us. Uh, Lord, we pray as we, as we dive into each of these six illustrations, God, that we Lord I, Lord, I pray that you would use the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, Lord, to conform us to your image. Oh, Father, I pray that each of us would open up our hearts and minds to what your Word says to us in this sermon, in this rest of this chapter, Lord, that you would do your work, God, to conform us to your image, Lord, so that we would be better Christians, Lord, that we would be better siblings, that we would be better spouses, that we would be better friends, that we would be a better witness to the world, God. And God, may you get all of the glory, get all of the honor and the praise. Father, I pray we need a heart change. God, I need a heart change, Lord. So often, God, when we're honest with ourselves, Lord, we often don't have the right desires, the right affections, the right motivation. Too often, God, we look at our external performance and deceive ourselves that we're right with you when all the while our heart is a whitewashed tomb. We pray, Lord, that you would break the fallow ground Lord, within our congregation, God, we all have heart work to do, Lord. I pray that you would help us, God, to be honest with ourselves. Open us up, God. Open up, open up our hearts, Lord. Open up the deep areas of our heart, God, each and every one of us, Lord, that we could allow your Holy Spirit, God, to conform us to your image. Father, so that when you do, God, and you do cleanse us, God, and you do raise us up to be more like Christ, God, that it would be a witness to the world. It would be a witness to those around us. It would be a witness, God, to um, our parents, our siblings, our spouses, our coworkers, God, that they would see such a vast change and that it would open up a door, God, to speak the gospel. We thank you, Lord. We give you all the honor and praise in Jesus' name.